to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast for dog owners. If you find yourself in precarious predicaments with your dog, this podcast is for you. I'm Rachel Harris. I'm a certified professional dog trainer, and I hope to give you a fresh outlook on your dog's behavior and practical dog training advice. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. I have a pretty spectacular guest today. You may already know her. If you don't know her, you definitely know about decompression walks. And we're going to talk all about that today. So Sarah, for those listeners who don't already know you, can you just tell them a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, so I'm Sarah Streming. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and I have, I own and operate the Cognitive Canine, which is a virtual behavior consulting business. Um, I also have a podcast called Cog Dog Radio, and one of my big things, which is why we're talking today, is kind of wellness for dogs and tackling these tough behavior problems from a wellness standpoint first and then a behavior modification standpoint second. And so a huge part of that is what I call the decompression walk. Oh my God. Okay, so I just have to shout out your podcast because Cogdog Radio is amazing. And I have to tell you this, Sarah, that your podcast was a huge motivation for me starting mine. So thank you for being like a leader in the industry, right? Like let's reach all the people with the podcast. So um, for people listening who maybe don't exactly know what a decompression walk is, can you kind of define that for them? Yeah. So for me, it is exercise that involves freedom of movement as well as freedom of the mind. And what that means definitely varies, right? Generally speaking, though, if I had to kind of tell you what the generic decompression walk is, is the dog is off leash and you are in nature free of anything that might feel triggering to this particular dog. So preferably there is dirt or grass underfoot rather than concrete, um, trees and sky overhead rather than kind of buildings. And um, you are far away from, far enough away from things that that dog might find challenging. So that's what I mean by freedom of mind is that you don't need to be constantly giving the dog instruction. You also don't need to be um, constantly worried that the dog is kind of gonna pop off, be reactive, whatever. So for some dogs, that means that they need to be pretty far from traffic. But for some dogs, that might mean that you're adjacent to traffic because you know you're not gonna see other off-leash dogs if you're close to traffic, right? So it's um, it really depends on the situation, but that freedom of, Freedom of movement and freedom of mind are the important pieces for me. Oh my God. And it's so true, right? And for the dog, but for the people too, right? Like your focus is definitely making sure that people are also decompressing alongside their dogs. Preferably. I think that when you can get that kind of double bonus going on, like I, for me, decompression walks are everything, whether they needed them or not, I would still be going on them. But um, yeah, if you can both kind of relax because dogs are also really in tune. I don't think we talk about this enough to social signaling from you. When you are stressed, then your behaviors are different than when you're not. And 
I don't think it's wise for us to pretend that that's not having an effect on them. Right. Oh, because it is right. And like, there's, there's new research, right. About like the different, there's three different breed groups and it's like the herding group is particularly sensitive to people. Yes. And <laughs> shocking. Um, that is all of my dogs are in the herding group and most of my client dogs are in the herding group. I rarely have dogs actually outside of it. And, um, finding out that we now have actual data to support what we've kind of thought forever, which is that when our stress hormones spike, so do theirs. Um, I think that's been really obvious to me the whole time having these dogs, but it's, it's really cool to kind of have that information and to know that I wasn't just kind of making that up, that I thought that my dogs were more in tune to me than um, some other dogs that I've worked with or had seemed to be with their people. So the more in tune they are with you, obviously the more important it is to them that you're also relaxing on this decompression walk. Yeah. So Sarah, do you want to talk just a little bit about like your dogs and the decompression walks and like how that's essential to all of your lives? Yeah, so it varies depending on which dog we're talking about. So between my partner and I, we have eight dogs. <laughs> so <laughs> I won't give you the entire list. But um, for instance, my almost 13-year-old dog and my almost 15-year-old dog, they don't need it as much from like an exercise standpoint. It's still really healthy for them to be out there moving their bodies. And I think the fact that they're both really physically functional um, can be attributed back to a lot of this stuff. But for them mentally, like they can go several days without that walk and they're okay. My six-year-old Border Collie, he really, he really, really needs it. If he can't get out there and move his body and be free of kind of his demons <laughs> for, for a while and free of the voices in his head for a while, um, it's, it's bad. Things go poorly for us if he doesn't have those. Like his best agility lessons are after he's had like a 45 minute run in the woods first. He just comes to the table with such clarity of mind that he didn't have before that. And we are talking about dogs that, you know, we're ta I'm talking about a dog that 45 minutes in the woods is not physical exhaustion, not even close. So we're not talking about he gets tired and then he's easier for me we're talking about something deeper than that for sure. And then I do it a lot with my puppies. And I know, I mean, people kind of freak out about that and think that I'm going to hurt them. Um, but I don't know how you raise puppies without it personally, because for me, I think they need boatloads of physical movement and lots of just freedom to figure out their environment and do stuff with their mind without a lot of instruction from you to be kind of well-balanced adults. And so it's huge for me when they're puppies for that reason. If they're adults that have some behavioral concerns, it just helps everything be easier for them in their lives. Um, and then for me as a person, like it's actually a vital part of my, what I will call my mental health hygiene. <laughs> like if I'm taking care of Sarah the human, it also means that I'm spending a good amount of time in the woods. And part of that is that I need them to be free and relaxed out in the woods or it's hard for me, right? Or it's hard on me. Um, 
Well, and I also hate holding leashes. Like it's <laughs> just irritating for me. So I also think that, you know, the off leash part is as much for me as it is for them. Yeah. And I feel that on such a deep level. Right. And I think that like, you know, kind of swinging back to the puppy thing, I think that a lot of people struggle with puppies because we feel like we need to be doing all this training and making sure they're responding. And I think that that actually kind of kicks us in the ass sometimes and works against us when we're trying to like control, 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 and especially for dogs. So my youngest um, is an Amstaff and you know, the pulling on leash, everyone listening to this podcast has heard me complain about Waylon in great depth, but you know, in his adolescence, right? Like six months to a year, we didn't do anything on leash because he couldn't handle it. Yeah. That right. And it, it worked against us because then we're constantly pissed at each other. Cause he wants to go this way. And I want him to go this way and just taking yeah. that out of the equation and being like, cool. So let's go somewhere where you can just do what you want. And I can just follow you was hugely beneficial for not only our quality of lives, but also like our ability to communicate. Yeah. And I think, especially going back to the puppies, puppies and adolescents, right? They need recess, right? So you can't, it can't just be school all the time. <laughs> there also has to be recess. And I love the example of the fact that it actually requires a great deal of self-regulation for a dog to not pull on that leash. And so it's, you know, I always joke that the way that I train loose leash walking is I run them off leash for two hours first. <laughs> then I attach the leash and we walk like a quarter mile to the car and I feed them really nicely for, for walking with me. And it's just, it's antecedent arrangement. It's setting us up to have the most successful session that we can. And I absolutely, I have some um, physical problems that make dogs pulling me on leash extremely painful. And even if they're not big, like even if they're, none of my dogs are really that big. And also border collies generally don't pull that hard. Like they're averse to leash pressure kind of naturally. <laughs> um, but it's actually physically aversive to me. It's, I always joke like I'm the one wearing the prong collar. Like when they pull, it hurts me. And so it it can't happen. It's not, it's not good for me to, um, kind of allow it to happen and tolerate it and then get irritated and be a person that I don't want to be. Right. So yeah, when you've got a young dog that is just flailing at that pressure of that leash, it's the best thing for both of you is to just figure out how you can take it off. Yeah. So let's talk about that because I think that that's a huge barrier of entry for a lot of people because they can't fathom somewhere where the dog could be off leash and move freely. So um, I know, yeah. you know, obviously nature in woods, do you want to just give the listeners like a little bit more of an idea of like the location where you do decompression walks and like how you've guided your clients to find locations? Yeah. Location searching is all, that's always the big question, right? Because it isn't easy. And especially in the United States, there's a lot of barriers in most places to letting dogs have free off-leash exercise. That is not true everywhere in the world. And I find, I found that really fascinating when I was traveling to teach that like my, my students in the UK cannot fathom the fact that our dogs are not off-leash every day. <laughs> um, and then um, similar with my students in New Zealand, Australia is a little different because everything in Australia wants to kill and eat all of you. So that's kind of their bigger concern. It's not as much legality as like, I don't know, the snake that is going to kill you both. I don't know. Um, 
So safety is a big deal, but how you source those places, for one thing, we now have the fabulous app Sniffspot, um, where you can actually rent spaces that are safe and legal for off-leash um, exercise. Certainly hit or miss. You might need to drive a little ways. Um, I've rented a sniff spot a few times. I'm traveling in the past few days and it's an hour there and back each time I go, but it's worth it to me to know that it's secure and legal and safe for the dogs. Um, so you probably are going to have to get in your car and go somewhere. When I'm at home, I drive about 35 minutes each way to where I typically go. And I'm extremely lucky because it is a privately owned enormous property that's open for public use and leash laws are non-existent on that property because it's private property. Um, I know that makes me extremely privileged. Where I used to live, it was that was not the case. So I grew up in Colorado. I lived in Colorado for uh, the first 30 years of my life. And when I lived in Colorado, I used to drive very far into the mountains to feel good about it. Um, so finding places often has to do with trial and error. And you might try places out first with safety measures that you don't always use, like a long line, but while you're kind of scoping the place out. You also should talk to people. If you see a wide open field that's not being used, figure out who owns it. See if they wouldn't mind, right? So things like that. Um, forest service roads tend to work really nicely. Um, where I live now in Washington state, logging roads are everywhere. Like logging areas are everywhere and are typically open to public access. Um, also, you know, there are programs, depending on where you are. I know in Boulder, Colorado, you can buy a special tag and then and you can use the Boulder open space, um, things like that. It There is not an answer to this question. <laughs> the answer to this question is seek and you shall find. Like the answer, I used to also think it was impossible. It's not, but you are gonna, you're gonna go to some places that you don't like and you wind up not going anymore. You may have some encounters that were not great. You, <laughs> you know, things may happen on your way to getting to your great spot, but you'd have to be willing to kind of give it a try. And I think getting a decompression buddy whose dogs get along with yours is a really good way to be brave and go and try to find places and, um, Usually the further out, the further away from cities you can be, the safer it's going to be and the less likely you're going to run into a legal concern. It's more when you get into cities in suburbia that there are leash laws for a reason and um, all of the property tends to be owned, fenced, and nobody can be on it, right? But, you know, I've done like, I've done dirt roads in the middle of Wyoming that I had no idea where they were going. I mean, <laughs> so um, there's, there's definitely a kind of, you have to take your own risk aversion into account and also talk to people, ask people, try stuff, go places, maybe use your long line until you get to know the space, that sort of thing. Yeah. So let's talk about long lines a little bit, because I think that 
Well, I'd love to hear, right? Like, what's your perspective on that? Like, can dogs still truly decompress if they're on a long line? Like, obviously it's dog dependent, but I know that there's a lot of my listeners who are very risk averse to the dog being completely off leash. And I hear that, right? Like it takes a lot of bravery and time and effort to be like, okay, the dog could be off leash. Everything is going to be okay here. But like, can dogs truly decompress on long lines? It's a good question. Obviously the answer is it depends. What you have to come back to though is freedom of movement, freedom of mind. If both of those things can be achieved on the long line, then yes. If those things cannot be achieved on the long line, then no. So if your dog is at the end of the long line, helicoptering around you like a maniac screaming, no, it's not working for you. The long line should essentially be a seatbelt. It should be basically dragging and you're kind of holding the end of it, or maybe you're just gonna step on the end of it if you need to. If the dog is constantly pulling into it and frantically trying to get more freedom of movement, it will not work for you. In fact, it's probably going to aggravate you and the dog in a way that is really not helpful and counter to the reason that you went out there in the first place. I do think it requires some training for the dog to understand that they're on the line. It also requires some practice and skill on the part of the person. Um, They're not actually easy to handle if you're using a really long one, because I also have news for you, like it needs to be at least probably 20 feet. And 20 feet is about all I can handle. I have handled a 40 foot line for tracking and I hate it. So, um, it's just, it's, it's too much. It's too much to handle. It's too much to deal with. Right. And then if you have multiple dogs on long lines, like don't even get me started. Like that's a nightmare. Um, and so if the dog can achieve freedom of movement, freedom of mind on the long line, then yes, it it will work for you. So my dogs who are generally, um, whose needs are generally well met, they're not desperate for this kind of exercise, can decompress on the long line if need be when I'm traveling or maybe I'm teaching and there's a demo dog and I'm not just going to let them run through the parking lot on my break, but I want them to have a little bit more freedom than just their short leash. That works for them because they're not at this place of desperation. But when you start with a dog that has been deprived of this kind of exercise, the long line is usually not going to cut it until they are no longer deprived. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is something that I get a lot of flack for because Waylon gets to be off leash a lot and he has run into trouble. Things have happened. He has been quilled by porcupines and people, people can't comprehend, right? Like, well, isn't it the same? Isn't it just as good if he's on a long leash? And like for some dogs it is, but for him, it is not. I am not yep. completely meeting his needs if there is a long leash involved, right? And like, I think that there's, I, I love your, your choice of words, bravery, right? Like it takes a certain level of bravery from me to be like, yes, there is risk. There has been error, right? But we, I still have to step up and create that outlet for him. Because if I don't, then there's this whole ripple effect of other things that pop up that neither of us want in our lives. Yeah, and we could talk about we could go down so many different rabbit holes, Rachel, about things that are worth the risk that you may not understand are worth the risk until you actually see the benefits of the thing. I, as a woman hiking by myself, recognize that there is risk to me as well. Um, 
it is something that I have decided is worth what I get from the outing and from that kind of exercise for me. Um, my partner, Leslie, always likes to say that uh, she once really severely injured her knee hiking. But she has never once been hurt watching Netflix. So she could just, she could then ascertain that Netflix is safe and hiking is dangerous. But in the long term, actually, for her body and her health, hiking is safer than Netflix. So we have to we have to look at it these ways in order for us to understand it's worth the risk and go forward. Um, terrible things have happened to me with my dogs off leash that should be evidence alone of how important this is to me that I still unclip leashes at all. Um, and I do risk assessment of everywhere that I am. Like I'm lucky that I have a place, a regular place that I can go to that I know very well that feels really safe to me. Um, yesterday I was hiking my dogs near a really crazy rushing river and it made me really kind of nervous that maybe my puppy might think she's going to cool off or something in this insane whitewater <laughs> mountain river and um, be swept away. So she and my dog, who was going to lead her to the water, were leashed more than I wanted to and were verbally controlled a lot more than I wanted to on that walk because I recognized that there was a true danger that I needed to be worried about. Things like wildlife, which I know we're going to talk about, like, yes, there's inherent risk in, I'm going to say, I'm going to state this as what I think is truth. There's inherent risk in anything that's worth doing. And this is just no different. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So let's talk a little bit about like some of maybe the unintended consequences and like negative impact to wildlife areas, people, right? And like, again, everyone, there's no perfect solution here, but I think we can acknowledge, right? That like, we don't kid ourselves in thinking that there isn't consequence to other things happening in the environment, right? So I guess maybe really the conversation would be like, how are we trying to mitigate that impact or consequence to other things? Yeah, mitigate's a perfect word for it because you, we, even just hiking in wild spaces are affecting wild spaces, right? So even if your dog is on leash, you're affecting wild spaces and mitigating those concerns are what we need to be talking about rather than avoiding entirely. One thing is that, again, if they're not deprived, they do less thrashing through the environment like a maniac and destroying it. Um, I also think there is a huge training responsibility here. Um, huge. Yeah. I work, I know like when I get a puppy, my number one is this dog has to be off leash reliable in wild spaces. I do all kinds of things with my dogs. I compete with them. They fly on airplanes. They do a lot of other things that require a lot of training. But my number one, the second I get the puppy home, is off-leash reliability in wild spaces. And what that means to me is that the dog does not chase wildlife. And Rachel, that is different from dog will recall off wildlife. Because that's a goal too, but number one is dog does not chase wildlife. Um, dog, And then dog has reliable recall regardless of what it is. 
other dog, person, wildlife, water, <laughs> highly, highly valuable resource to one of my dogs. Um, dog has to reliably recall off those things, has to listen to me, has to have like a skill set that is largely kind of, you know, if you imagine me and the dog's kind of working relationship is the core and then there's all these skills surrounding it. One of them being default to return to me if you see something that is weird or that you've never seen before, etc. So it is, I think the training responsibility is enormous and that feels not doable to a lot of people, but I have to tell you, it's just, it has, it happens to just be a lifestyle. So if you decide to kind of make those lifestyle changes to have a dog that is reliable in these spaces, then fine. Um, people, you know, this is where control devices come into the picture, not only long lines, but e-collars. Like people talk extensively about, you know, what's okay to use, what, you know, where's the line for you. I am going to tell you that if I had a dog that I could not achieve off-leash reliability with, with positive reinforcement, that is the one time that I probably would reach for an e-collar. However, it hasn't happened to me yet. I have a pretty good program. My dogs pretty much see deer, stop and return to mom. Like it's, um, it, I'm pretty successful with it. I'm going to knock on something right now because I certainly don't kid myself that that dog could show up for me. Um, but, and actually my new dog, my Icelandic sheepdog, my first non-border collie in 20 years is pushing a lot, is really stretching my program. She's reliable so far. She's only seven months old, so we'll see. But um, she's stretching my program because she's not a border collie. Border collies, inst the, if a border collie sees something weird, their first thought is, I probably shouldn't. Right. <laughs> hey, the Icelandic sheepdog's a Viking. Her first thought is, I probably should, right? So, so it's a little bit harder. Um, but so the training responsibility and obviously waste removal and things like that, but also just understanding that um, seeking out those places that you are less likely to have some kind of huge impact on is, is important too. Like trails that are for people, fields that are, you know, open to your use that certainly things live in, but we're not talking about my dog crashed through the woods and like upset a deer den, right? Like we, we want to be careful about all these things. There's an enormous, to me, the training responsibility is the biggest piece. Um, it isn't okay to just, you know, as I sometimes advise, like if the dog is in pursuit of a deer or something, you screaming their name is worthless in that moment. So I do advise people to kind of wait till the dog maybe decides, okay, this thing is faster than me and then call, but that's a damage control situation. Dog shouldn't have chased a deer in the first place. Um, so it's a big deal to me to also, you know, <laughs> within reason, follow the rules of where you are. I try to keep my dogs on trails if we are on a hiking trail rather than allowing them to kind of thrash through the woods. But again, I'm able to do that because they're not deprived. The more control you, you have to put on it, the less freedom of body and mind that they're going to have. And so 
there's a balance to be found. I don't know. Hopefully I answered your question. I got a little tangential <laughs> as I do. You definitely did. You definitely did. And like, I, I can't remember what episode it was with Cog Dog Radio. I think it was maybe Casey, like a trainer who works for you, something you guys mm-hmm. talked about, like decompression walks for non-border collies, right? For some of these dogs who have like yeah. more instincts to chase and stuff like that. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that there's no one right answer there, everyone. Right? Everyone listening to this podcast, they know my saga with Waylon and wildlife and like, you know, I guess that I do my best to mitigate impact to wildlife, but I also acknowledge that because Waylon is who he is, expecting him to never chase wildlife is also not a reality, right? So, you know, it's one of those things that I think you have to acknowledge who your dog is as an individual. And like, you know, for us, like uh, uh, an ethical boundary I've said is that like in the spring when deer are having babies, elk are having babies, that's when we reach for the long leash, you know, yeah. is isn't completely deprived. So like we can be successful with the long leash in that standpoint. But, you know, I think we, we just have to honor who our dogs are as genetic individuals when it comes to breeding. Yeah. We're not kidding ourselves that like for some dogs, not chasing wildlife isn't a reality. True. And it's like you said, it's all mitigation. And I just thought of kind of a, I don't, an analogy or just kind of a similar thing in my life is that my dogs also eat meat and I I do too, but like I didn't for a long time and I recognize fully the impact on animal welfare and, and the environment of feeding my dogs meat. And your dogs are eating meat, whether you feed them raw like me or you feed them kibble, right? So it doesn't, they're eating meat either way. And so for me, I have made a choice every time I fill that bowl with food to to place truthfully to place my dog's welfare above somebody else's I have every single time I put food in their bowl and I'm not saying that's like good or okay but I'm saying that it's life and we all need to kind of make our choices that we feel good about and that we feel comfortable about and you deciding okay these are the places and the times that Waylon's going to be free because he needs to, but it's not going to be all the time because that is too much of an impact. You know, these are kind of the individual choices that we do need to make. And I'm sure that there are, um, you know, animal, animal welfare people who think that I'm terrible for feeding my dogs meat. And I also am sure that there are wildlife professionals who think this conversation is ridiculous and all dogs need to be on leash. And I fully recognize that those are also valid opinions um, that happen to be different from mine. Yeah. And like, I've definitely gotten some feedback, right? Not some not so great feedback from some wildlife people. And like, I hear you, right? Like, it's not that I think that like, you know, the dogs being off leash isn't coming at a cost, but you know, I think that as much as I can mitigate that risk, right? And like, you know, I do my best, but like Waylon chasing one deer for like 50 yards and then recalling to me, that's like the minimal impact that is real for us as a team, right? So- Sure, yeah, and I do think that everybody should make their choices when they're deciding on what dogs to acquire as well. Like when you already have the dog, you make everything work like you make it work within what who that dog is and who you are and what you guys can do right but i get emails all the time that go like this i am dead set on 
X breed that is known to be extremely predatory. And I also do a lot of off-leash hiking. And do you think it's possible to train that dog to do that? And the answer is always, yes, it's possible. And also you don't want to work that hard. And I promise you, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So there's, you know, people roll their eyes sometimes at my recall program because most of my dogs are border collies, you know, never mind the fact that it works for my clients too, don't have border collies, but, um, they're, they're also kind of not wrong. They are easier to teach a recall to than a lot of other breeds. If I went and got, you know, a foxhound and <laughs> wanted it to have the exact same training and reliability as my border collies, I would have to work a lot harder than I have to work right now. But that's a choice I make for myself. One of my biggest things, I mean, I asked before I got the Icelandic sheepdog, I was like, talk to me about hiking, talk to me about predatory behaviors, talk to me about off-leash reliability, because we are always smart to make sure that the dogs, you know, before we get the dog, to try to make sure that the dog's genetics also line up with what we want to do and what our expectations of them are. Yeah. Yeah. And right. And like, it's so funny because like, you know, I got an AM staff, I've had AM staffs, I love AM staffs. And I was still like, oh yeah, all this stuff I have to do to convince him not to do X, Y, or Z. Right. And like, you know, people think I'm fucking crazy, right? Like Waylon has been quilled three times. He has gone on 1000 hikes in his life. To me, yeah. those are good margins. You know, but like, yeah, be honest about like, you know, you're not gonna, not going to get a hound dog, a coon hound and like they expect them just to be perfect off leash tomorrow. Right. So I think it's also, a lot about expectations. Go ahead. Yeah. But also, you're not going to get that coon hound and have it be happy in your house without that off leash exercise. So you need to balance those things. One of my biggest frustrations, truly, is people um, buying dogs particularly in my line of work, it's usually somebody who bought a very high caliber dog to do a sport with. And then they also tell me they don't have time or inclination to provide what the dog truly needs as far as a physical or mental outlet. Right. So they really wanted it to be their sports car that sits in the garage all week until Sunday. And then Sunday they take it out and take it for their joyride, And then they put it back in. Right. Dogs don't actually work like that. So if you need a dog with pretty low needs, great. You're going to have to work harder to convince that dog that sports are a good time. That's just, you know, these are the, that's the balancing act. So we all need to kind of make our choices as far as these are the hard things that I want to do. These are the hard things I can deal with doing. And these are the hard things I can't and don't want to do. Yeah. Because there isn't a dog that is like going to just, sit in your house and be perfect five days a week and then go to the agility trial and be amazing and then come home and go back to being quiet and perfect and do nothing like they just don't work like that <laughs> right like that is fictitious everyone like that doesn't exist yeah. right well and yeah, like, like, I mean, you know, what kind of dog should i get this, these are my needs and i'm and that it looks basically roughly like that they're like i have three kids i work full time um you know i'm super busy the dog's definitely gonna go to agility class once a week um, you know, what should I get? And <laughs> the answer is always like, you know, take a hard look at what you're able to give that dog back for giving you such, um, you know, being such a great sport companion or just being a great, you know, companion dog that is fictitious to, like I always say, they're not 
a lawn ornament. Like they need, <laughs> they need things. Like when people go off about, you know, anytime I say X is a good choice for a family, I get 10 different people saying, but here's all the reasons they're not. You know, like if I say, if I say, you know, I I was recently blasted on TikTok for saying that I'm pro doodle because I am pro responsible doodle breeding, they and family pets they really <laughs> because they're they are so often so wonderful because they're actually being produced for that purpose. That's what they're for. And then I get a bunch of people who are like, yeah, but people don't groom them. And I'm like, yeah, they don't groom anything that you give them. So what? <laughs> what's the point? So you know, that's just an education problem. They dog needs to go to the groomer once a month. That's 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 all that is. So everything comes, you know, anything I say, people are going to have an argument for, right? Or against, and that's fine. <laughs> Okay, and I think we need to shout out all the beautiful people who adopted mixed breed dogs and maybe you didn't know what yeah. you got yourself into and you yep. stepped up and you did it anyways, right? Because like that's so yeah. many of the people that I work with that are just like, so cool, we have this high drive dog. How do we do this? Right. And they just embrace great. it. Just embrace it. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you wind when you are getting a dog with unknown origin and maybe unknown history. Yeah, you probably are signing up for a project. That's just like, can we just actually educate people on the fact that like this won't probably be an easy ride? That doesn't mean it's not going to be great. And it doesn't mean it's not going to be really rewarding and you're not going to love this dog, but it's probably not going to be an easy ride. My sister has um, a, I think he embarked like, he's like chow, malamute, husky, cattle dog, border, he's like, everything that's hard like he's <laughs> nothing that's easy okay there's no retriever in this animal and yeah he's been a lot of work but she's worked really hard to meet his needs and meet him where he is and because she can she's been able to do that he's a great dog for her but I'm, I'm happy that some family with three kids didn't adopt this puppy, right? Because they could have, right? Because she's she's just going to make the choice to step it up, yes. And huge um, applause for anybody who realizes that maybe they bit off more than they can chew, but then they chew like hell, right? Seriously. <laughs> so, yeah. And to all those people, please embrace them, step up for them, but take notes and your next dog you can make those choices so that the next round, it doesn't have to be so hard, right? Like you deserve that, right? You deserve to have a dog who's going to fit into your life and isn't always a giant project. I mean, every dog is a project. Every dog needs work, but like, right. you know, kudos to you for stepping up for that dog, but like you can use everything you learned from that dog to make maybe a, a more suitable breed combination choice yeah. in the future. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you can learn, live and learn and move forward. And know that anytime you have zero idea of the dog's origin it's you're rolling the dice and if that's how you like to live then like power to you <laughs> but but it's true learn make different choices because i think a lot of people wind up with dogs that aren't right for them accidentally yeah and that's fine as long as you then kind of learn what is right for you and do that next time <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about like encountering people and other dogs in like a decompression walk setting, because I know that there are a lot of feelings from dogs who dog guardians who have dogs who like aren't good with dogs, like seeing an mm -hmm. awkward dog is like particularly triggering to them. So I don't know, do you maybe want to speak to like your like system and like how, when you encounter people and dogs, you're containing your dog. So it's not having a negative impact to the other people. 
yeah, really, really important to me that my dogs do not have a negative impact on somebody who's trying to work on their dog. Uh, my first border collie was severely dog aggressive. And so anytime I saw an off-leash dog on the trail, my heart sank, right? Like it caused me legitimate anxiety anytime that happened. Because I also could pretty much guarantee that person couldn't call their dog. Um, and so I take my signals from the person and the dog largely. If they, maybe they're off-leash too and they see me and they leash up, then I do that as well. Um, if they move their dog to the other side of them, try to pull over, try to like, if I see them trying to do the things to get the control over the dog, I instantly gain control of mine. I either leash them, pull them over, put them in downstays. Like I demonstrate control for this person so that this person can relax. Um, I am going to tell you nine times out of 10, what I see is an off-leash dog that can't be recalled that's running up to my dogs. Like usually that's what happens. So where I put my time and work actually now, which is a huge difference from what I used to do, is teaching my dogs to accept that and roll with that and be okay because that's actually the reality of what they're gonna deal with. Do I think it's okay for you to be that person? No. <laughs> do I think you need to accept that that is most people and work on it? Yes. Uh, screaming, call your dog. Doesn't work. Actually just upsets your dogs. Um, Cause I promise you if they could, they already would have. Uh, <laughs> and so, really. so for me, if I see a person or a dog, it is important to me that my dogs can do several different things. It's important to me that they can leash up if asked. It's important to me that they can pull over and pause for a second if asked. It's important to me too though, that they can just pass by easily and maybe have a brief interaction and move on if that looks like that's what's going to work best for everybody involved. So it does take a little bit of reading the room, <laughs> kind of figuring out what looks like it's going to work best. Um, I also certainly like, I have some biases. I am not going to allow my group of five to approach anything, no matter how nicely that is on leash. And I also don't want them to approach tiny dogs as um, I have my first small dog ever. And that you know, it's nerve wracking because you've heard the stories, right? Um, but uh, there are also, you know, I think that we are silly to not talk about breed tendencies, right? And if I see a cattle dog trotting down the trail, like likelihood is cattle dog is gonna be like, hey, and keep walking and not going to want to actually say hi. So I'm going to tell them not to say hi. These are all training things that I do. I work really hard on when they're allowed to say hi, when they're not. Um, and I work really hard on both leashing and pulling over. And then the you're not allowed to say hi, it's just walking past. So there's a lot of training that goes on there. But the most important thing I think you need to do is signal to the other person that you got this. When I see another person start to freak out, that is when I gain the most control over my dogs because I prefer to not have to. Um, I actually think all the dogs do better socially if we don't do that all the time. If we don't constantly put them on leash and make it an event that we're passing the dog every single time, they do so much better socially if we don't have to do that. 
It's so true, and that's so unpopular. That's such an unpopular opinion, right? Like people don't leash your dogs, leash your dogs. And like, yes, don't be an asshole. But also like, if you don't interfere and you just let the dogs do their thing and you move on, it could be so much easier for everyone. Well, it is, it is so much, and it's a smarter way to socialize. And I, we, we are creating, I think a lot of the, just, we have a problem with leash reactivity. Like we are, I, I don't see dogs that aren't barking lungy on leash. Like uh, most of them that I see are really struggling with that. And there's good reason for that. And we, it is best for us to actually signal to our dogs. Nothing is out of the ordinary here. We're fine rather than going, oh, we got to make this an event. We got to go unleash. We got to pull over. We got to do, you know, all of this stuff. So signaling to the other person that you have everything under control and also reading the room. And also if you kind of can't read the room, like call out because I also inform I also instruct people that they should greet others warmly when they see them. Even if you really don't want to talk to anybody, like I really don't. Um, (laughs) If you greet them warmly, greet their dogs, warmly you're socially signaling that everything here is fine um so your dogs can kind of also go oh mom's not freaked out we're not freaked out it's okay we can keep we can keep going and this is all for dogs that like don't have huge problems already right like this is to prevent problems (laughs) just greeting people warmly not going to cure your you know stranger directed aggression so don't quote me on that but (laughs) um so just signaling to the person i have this under control reading the room kind of make like it isn't to me it's not a every single time i see another dog or a person i leash and pull over that just is not how it works for me um and it's, you know, it's, it's very much just reading the situation at large. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, it's like, you know, everyone, this seems so easy when Sarah says it, right? But remember that this is years and years and years and years yeah. of training and practice and getting better and making different choices when they need to be made, right? So don't feel like you are doing something wrong because this isn't your reality yeah. right now, right? Like it takes time, it takes, it takes a lot of effort. Yeah. And But, you know, I think that for those of you listening, if you have a dog who is quote unquote dog social, meaning in most circumstances, they can greet dogs and it's like not a huge issue. You know, I think that taking dog interactions off the table for that dog is not going to work well for you. It's only going to manifest itself in like more frustration. Right. And like, you know, same thing for me. I work, most of the dogs I work with are lungy barky. And a lot of those dogs, I instruct them. I'm like, these, this dog needs to greet dogs more. And people are like, I'm like, yes, right? Like constantly depriving them of dog interactions is making things a problem. Right? Mm-hmm. Like on leash greetings isn't the end of the world, people. It isn't the end of the world. <laughs> it's not. And also, can I just say, like, I screw this up all the time. I'm talking about what is ideal. I definitely do not get this right all the time. My puppy yesterday, we were on our hike and we saw a lot of backpackers. We didn't see a lot of um, dogs, but we saw a lot of backpackers. So like when I see a backpacker like hefting up a trail, I am moving over for them because I'm like, go get it. You're awesome. (laughs) I am not going to make you stop because I know from experience you need that momentum to keep going up that hill. And so I'm pulling my dogs over, which, you know, more often than they usually have to. and a couple of times my dogs were like stationed on a rock and Raya, my puppy, 
went and just did a brief like I'm gonna lick your kneecap and then I'm gonna run back <laughs> and get and get up on the rock and like that is not perfect. She could have tripped that person. That's not good, right? Um, and yet, she gets better every time. She's getting, you know, you know, I'm responding in the moment and making sure that um, I'm practicing a lot on that walk, even when there are not backpackers, because I'm like, okay, this is going to be a thing. So let's do a lot of practice of this. Um, it's not always perfect. Sometimes things happen. Sometimes dog-dog altercations happen. It's okay. Breathe. This is all part of it. You're, you know, anything what's what's the thing it's like it's like the first step to being good at something is being bad at it so just it's fine right, <laughs> right. I, think, I think we have to be flexible right and honor and recognize like it is messy it is not always easy there's going to be that snarky person who has lots of feelings and says something shitty to you right you're going to feel embarrassed when the dog doesn't do exactly what you had intended them to do like that's just part of it that's just part of it. But like what we stand to gain, right? Like I think from both of our perspectives is way worth any of the potentially like not so fun stuff that could happen. It is. And when that person says something shitty to you, just, you know, I usually just in my mind, I'm usually just like, I hope your day goes better, man. Like, <laughs> I just feel bad. I'm like, I'm sorry. Your life is at this point where like, you need to be shitty to me right now. Like that's a bummer. Right. I'm sorry for you in that. <laughs> what a bummer that you're not just like vibing in the mountains and don't care that a dog just licked your knee kneecap, but you know, whatever. <laughs> right. And I think too, everyone, like it's okay to acknowledge that when things didn't go your way, like apologize to people, communicate to people, oh, yeah. right? Like, and I think that that is so hard for a lot of us is just to like, be warm. I love your choice of words, but just be warm to people, right? And yeah. like, you know, so many good things can happen from that. And like, literally we speak the same language. We all speak the same <laughs> language, just talk to people, right? Like I was on a trail yesterday and these lovely people pulled off, not far enough. Waylon was on leash. I was like, can you scoot over like two more feet? They did, we got past, it was perfect. Right. So it's like, oh, you know, what a miracle. right. Like I could have been pissed. Like, God, these assholes. And not one feet of space. Like it's real. And that's the same with when off leash dogs run up to your dog. Like people are doing the best they can and people are not dog trainers. And also the social signaling, the, so, the cultural norm is kind of that nobody's dog comes when they're called. So <laughs> it's pretty expected. Welcome, right? Like just, if you can yeah. just know that and embrace it, I feel like it takes half of the yeah. pressure off of it. It does, it does. And like, like you're saying, right? If like, you know, an off-leash dog approaches, you're like, oh, there's an off-leash dog here, right? As long, you know, barring your dog isn't like horribly dog aggressive or something. Like, you know, it's honestly probably right. gonna go better nine times out of 10 than you think it is. That's what I have really, clung to and what has proven true for me because I was pretty traumatized honestly after my first dog was so aggressive that like I was very averse to any dogs meeting any other dogs out kind of in the wild because of the number of times it resulted in a dog fight with him um if I had him today he'd be wearing a basket muzzle I would have spray shield on my belt and I would be able to greet those other dogs warmly give him a chance at being nice rather than if you're stringing a dog up trying to control them you're not actually giving them a chance 
And I think he would have been a lot healthier, to be honest. I think he would have been more capable of dealing with um, those things in his life than I had the tools to help him do when I had him. And it's hard. It's a lot of trauma, right? Like I've had many dog aggressive dogs. I've broken up so many fights and you know, our dog, Sunny, super dog aggressive, right? Put holes in a lot of dogs. We muzzle trained, he hiked hundreds of hikes with me off leash and we never once had a problem. Yeah. And a lot of times if you can just relax because those safety mechanisms are involved, um, it, it really helps everybody. And I, I'm not saying it's okay for your muzzled dog to also attack another dog. Like, you know, you have to do what you need to do. It's, it's again, it's a seatbelt. It shouldn't be, it's not a parachute. Like it's not, we definitely need this. <laughs> it is a seatbelt. It is making sure that if disaster strikes, it is less catastrophic than it could be. Yeah. Right. And I think for everyone listening, if you have a dog who falls into the aggressive behavior category, like that is what we're here for. We literally have devoted our entire lives to making sure that we can support you and that you and your dogs can live the best life you, you possibly can with the least amount of error. Yeah. Yeah. Get help. It is there. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my God, Sarah, this has been so freaking awesome. Do you have anything else you wanted to share about decompression walks for our listeners? Any like how you feel like maybe it gets misinterpreted because I know it has really taken the world by storm, which is so amazing. But um, is there anything that you feel like maybe people misunderstand about decompression walks? I do think that, um, and thank you, Rachel, this has been fantastic. I do think that people think that I want you to just go to any old city park where there's a leash law and unclip because that's what your dog needs. And I do not think it's okay for you to infringe on the freedoms of others while you are doing this. And so it's important to keep that in mind. Um, and I also think that people I think people misunderstand the concept in general and kind of want rules and they want like how many times a week, how many minutes, how many, whatever. And it does not work like that. You have to just get out there and start trying. And I will say that 100% of my clients who have devoted the time and the effort and the energy to it have reaped the benefits and have had healthier dogs in a, in a mental health kind of way. Um, it is to me not optional. If you are getting a dog, you also need to think about what the off-leash opportunities for exercise are because they are captive animals and moving their body in nature is kind of what they're designed to do. And then we don't let them do it. And if you went to a zoo and they were like, oh, we feed the tigers rice and beans because, you know, we don't want to hurt anyone. You'd be a little, you'd be like, eh, I'm pretty sure a tiger is supposed to eat meat, <laughs> right? And then you'd be, you'd be upset about that. You'd be like, I'm not, I'm not really sure I'm into this zoo, right? When we get a dog, we have a captive animal that we need to take care of the best that we can for their species. And this is part of that. And then I will just say the GPS collar makes a world of difference for your stress levels as far as letting the leash 
go. Because, um, you know, for me, being able to actually track where the dog is on a screen is invaluable, really, really important, um, has been a game changer for me. And there are a lot of different kinds. So just kind of do your own research as far as what, which one's going to work for you. Yes, you guys, there are so many safety nets. I mean, it's nice. Yeah, the GPS collar, are you kidding me? Like when I can watch the yardage and then like, I think that that restores our faith in our dog's ability to return to us too and realizing that like the dog's intention isn't to leave us forever and always, right? Like. (laughs) Yeah, that's really true. I mean, when you're like, wow, you're 150 yards away and oh, you turned around, good, okay. You can also actually see that your recall worked. Like you can, you don't have to keep standing there yelling because you just see that number getting smaller. They're coming. It's just taking them a second because they were far away. <laughs> oh my God. Yes, that has done all, it's been a world of difference for my heart rate. I will tell you that. I will tell you that. Yes. Okay. So Sarah, if listeners wanted to connect with you, um, wh- where's the best place to find you? Everything is really on my website, thecognitivecanine.com, and canine is spelled out. But I'm also on the Facebook, which is also the Cognitive Canine, and then Cog Dog Radio is on Facebook as well. But amazing, all of that's on my website. That up so everyone can find you. And then, um, are you taking um, uh, new clients right now? If someone wanted to work with you virtually. I am. I, I work in a couple of different ways. Um, one of my services is booked. Uh, that's kind of my ongoing intensive coaching is booked, but I do consultations. Um, that is booked out a couple of months, but that's certainly something people can reach out about. Amazing. Amazing. Sarah, thank you for being such an amazing advocate for dogs everywhere. Thank you so much, Rachel. Reactive Redefined is our online coaching program for reactive dogs and their guardians. If you would like to join Reactive Redefined, it will reopen for enrollment on Monday, July 5th. Uh, Reactive Redefined will be open for enrollment for just a couple of days. Enrollment will close on Friday, July 9th. So if you'd like to be on the official wait list to be the first to join Reactive Redefined when it opens, head over to our website, agoodfeelingdogtraining.com slash reactive redefined. All right, everybody, I know that CBD is a hot topic and rightfully so. There's a lot of misinformation surrounding CBD, but I tell you what, there's a lot of pretty amazing evidence for how amazing CBD can be for not only humans, but also for our pets. Uh, The ladies at VetCS were on the podcast recently. It was episode 148. Give it a listen. You will learn a lot. Um, But I use VetCS products for me. I use VetCS products for the dogs. And I tell you what, Tiva, as she ages, the CBD is just amazing for her arthritis. And Waylon greatly benefits from the CBD too. So if you've been considering CBD for you or for your pet, check out VetCS.com. And you can use code DisorderlyDogs for 10% off your first purchase. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you need help with your dog's behavior, you can learn more about our training services at agoodfeelingdogtraining.com. We post training inspiration and training tips almost daily over on the Instagram at agoodfeeling underscore NCO. If you like this podcast, we would be so grateful if you could share it with a friend or family member who could benefit from all of the information. Um, It's been a total delight. We love this podcast so much. And thank you so much for listening to Disorderly Dogs.